0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by my friend Peter Paik for another discussion of Korean cinema in our Asian series. We have already talked about two of the films of Park Chan-wook in his Vengeance trilogy Old Boy and Lady Vengeance. And we are now moving to the most successful Korean director right now, Bong Joon-ho, whose movie Parasite has just won the Palme d'Or in Cannes in 2019. It has been nominated for a lot of awards, including three big Oscars, and is slated to win something. And it seems to be taking the world by storm. It has been a hit in art, cinema, and it has also been an incredibly successful movie in South Korea where it grossed more than 70 million dollars. It was also therefore much talked about in the prestige press as a show of class wars, the rich and the poor. And so I invited Peter to talk about it because I found his commentary on the movie unique, contrarian and insightful, which is, Peter, how I usually find the things that you have to say. So thanks a lot for joining me again. As always, I hope to learn from you. And please tell me how you discovered Parasite and what have you noticed about it?
1: Well, I was in Korea when it came out. There was quite a bit of publicity in in the lead-up because this was the latest film of Bong Joon-ho, who is now uh, considered one of the major directors in South Korea, one who is able to make films that are praised by critics as well as popular with audiences. His previous film, The Host, had been a best-selling film uh, when it had come out. And so it's a very eagerly anticipated film, especially after it took the top prize at Cannes. I was able to go see it during the uh, first week that it had come out in a very, very packed theater, and I was very much swept away by the film. I mean, I think it's very, very different from anything else that Bong Joon-ho has made, and I think it offers a very striking portrait, a picture into South Korean society. As you mentioned, although I do have some very strong differences about what the film actually means, given the fact that it has been commonly interpreted as a film about class struggle, about the divide between rich and poor, and the disappearance of opportunities for the poor to improve their economic condition. But I think the film is, is much more subtle than that. And there are many aspects of the film that do not fit this fairly easy, very Manichaean view You know that many critics, I think all over the world, you might say, have attributed to the film.
0: I think very much this is a case of elites seeing something popular and hoping that it means what the elites want it to mean. <laughs> because it's such a comfortably liberal interpretation of the story where the rich are evil, at least systemically, if not personally, mm-hmm. and the poor are not wicked, their crimes are not bad, they are in fact merely victims of an oppressive society who take what's coming to them and give the rich what's coming to them. I think that is is indeed a very simplistic and uh, misjudged view of the film, so please, to begin with, run us through the plot to okay. get a grasp of what's actually involved in Bong's story.
1: Okay, so the film opens by showing us the four members of the Kim family who uh, live in a half-basement apartment. Well, The apartment is below ground level, but they have a window that looks out into the street, testifying to sort of the hard economic block of the family. The family also does not have uh, Wi Fi. And so, one of the interesting early scenes in the film is the son, Kiwoo, and the daughter, Kijung, both of whom are young adults, raising their phones up to the ceiling to try to get Wi Fi. South Korea is one of the most wired countries in the world. And so, the very fact that they have to piggyback on someone else's Wi Fi or, or try to find some point of access to the internet is a sign of their economic desperation. The family is also reduced to doing these um, very menial jobs. They get a job folding pizza boxes for a local delivery service. And and then, not having done this work before, uh, they watch a video on YouTube showing them how to do it quickly. And it's interesting that the video on YouTube is a video that was made in Russia, a Russian woman folding pizza boxes. It's interesting. I think among Koreans, there's also sort of a stereotype of Russians as being very skilled with their hands. Right, that they have managed to uh, keep up uh, certain um, pre-modern skills that you know, modern Koreans have lost. Of course, they run into trouble when some of the pizza boxes, a good percentage of them turn out to be unusable. And so the son manages to head off the confrontation between his mother and the manager of the uh, delivery company. But then, you could say that the story really gets going when a friend of the son, Kiwu shows up asking him if he could take over his job tutoring the daughter of a wealthy family while he goes abroad for a year to the United States to study. The friend is someone who is attending a university, whereas Kiwu himself has tried multiple times to get into university but was never able to achieve a high enough score to gain an entrance. And Kiwu asks, well, you know, how can you expect me to do this, right? They'll find out, you know, that I'm not qualified. But the friend basically waves away such concerns and says, you know what's on the exam. You didn't get a high enough score on the exam, but you know enough of what's on the exam so that you should be able to do the job. And then the friend also basically asks him, it's also kind of a romantic favor right the friend uh, is uh, enamored of this girl is planning to ask her out uh, when he comes back from the united states and so he trusts his friend Kiwu not to do anything you know not to make any romantic overtures while he is substituting for him so in order for Kiwu to take this job his sister helps him put together a forged transcript from yonsei university uh, which is one of the top universities in south korea and this moment actually shows off the skill of the daughter in being able to create uh, authentic-looking documents. Armed with this fake diploma, Kiwo goes to the home of the wealthy family, where he is welcomed by the maid, who then has to go over and wake up the mistress of the house, Mrs. Park, to meet him. When we first get to see Mrs. Park, the wealthy woman, she's lying with her head on a table, uh, looking, you know completely exhausted. But Kiwu was able to present himself as a uh, competent teacher. And in fact, during the first session, when the mother sits in while Kiwu tutors her daughter, she winds up very impressed by him, right? So the friend was actually quite accurate in assessing Kiwu's abilities, that he is able to pass himself off as a learned tutor and as a student at a top college. Kiwu was actually able to earn his place, you might say, in the wealthy Park family. He also adopts an American name, Kevin. It also sort of shows the prominence of American culture among the wealthy, right? America is still very much associated with upward mobility. And then the, he hears from the mother that she would like an art therapist for her son, who's about seven years old, to help him you know, work through perhaps some kind of um, scary incident that he had experienced while younger. And so Kiwu then decides to introduce his sister as an art teacher to the family, but under a different name, as the friend of a friend who had studied in the United States. And so also then has the credentials that wealthy Koreans would look upon as necessary for this kind of educational work. I should add that in Korea, there's a huge culture of tutoring, right, because the education system is so competitive that it's really quite common for people in their 20s to work as tutors, you know, whether to put them through graduate school or even as a full-time job. And these are people who might work in, like, you know, uh, after-school cram schools. So Ki Chung, who is introduced as Jessica, also then is able to figure out the sort of the trauma that the little boy is suffering from. Uh, she's able to figure this out doing a Google search on art therapy, uh, which apparently the, uh, identifies part of the painting as the area you know, where people who are uh, emotionally troubled or represent the traumatic event. So the Kim family then has two people working in the house. But one, one night when Ki-jung is, is given a ride home by the limousine driver for Mr. Park, she decides to play a trick on the driver by stuffing her panties behind the front seat to make it seem as though the driver is having sex in the car. And she's in a way driven to do this because the driver tries to hit on her, right, and, and makes a kind of a romantic overture. But um, after um, finding the panties, uh, Mr. Park decides to fire the driver. And uh, Ki Jung then suggests that, well, she knows, again, a family friend who is a professional driver to take over as the new chauffeur. And of course, she introduces her father as this professional driver. And so you have three members of the family working for the parks. And then, of course, the mother then gets a job when the three Kims decide to make it seem as though the longtime maid, housekeeper who has been uh, working there even before the parks moved in, by making it seem as though she is suffering an hiding an infection of uh, tuberculosis. And they do this by taking advantage of the fact that she is allergic to peaches. The housekeeper then is let go, right, by the mother. And soon you have the whole family of Kims now, all four of them working, you know, for the parks. But of course, the parks do not know that they are all related to each other. One day, the parks decide to go camping to celebrate the birthday of their uh, young son. And so the Kim family then decides to have a kind of party Enjoying the house, or drinking the liquor, eating the snacks, you know, but also doing things that are, well, unethical, right? Like Kiwu begins looking through the diaries of his student, Dahe, who, well, they've since become romantically entangled. And so he reads her diaries. The family, in some sense, treat the house as their own. Uh, making a mess, even breaking glasses, and of course, in the middle of all this, a storm breaks out. And in the heavy rain, the former housekeeper uh, Moon Guang shows up, right, asking desperately to be let in. Now, Chung Suk, the uh, mother of the Kim family, feels a, a bit of sympathy for her and, and lets her in. And Moon Guang then reveals that there's a underground basement room that's been sealed off from the rest of the house that the Parks do not know about, where she has been keeping her husband Kunse who has been hiding there from loan sharks, right, after their business failed. Moon Gwang begs uh, Chung-Suk to um, keep his um, presence there secret, and, and it's a very uh, disturbing scene when she gives him food, you know, because he's uh, obviously hasn't had anything to eat ever since she was fired, and of course she brings him milk in a baby's bottle. <laughs> right, so there's uh, something very clearly off about the man. But then the Kims uh, wind up uh, accidentally uh, revealing that they're present, and Moon Kwang suddenly realizes she had been driven out through their schemes. And so she threatens to call the Parks and get them all fired, but then the Kims are able to overpower Moon Guang and her husband and force them back into the uh, underground room. Uh, Moon Guang in this incident, hits her head against the wall and suffers a fatal head injury. Okay, and, and of course this happens when uh, the parks call and inform Cheongsook that they're coming back. So the Kim family has managed to conceal the secret, you know, for the present. But then they realized um, when they go back home that their house has been flooded by the storm. And so they wind up um, sleeping in a high school in a shelter for um, people who have been driven from their homes by the storm. But then they receive a call the next day from the parks that they want all of them to be present for a birthday party for the boy Tassam. And is at the birthday party where actually Kiwo decides to go down into the basement to solve the problem. Right, he takes the scholar stone that he has received as a gift from his friend to kill uh, Gunse, the madman in the basement. But Gunse overpowers him and in fact nearly kills him. Gunse, before he had been locked up again, had been told by his wife that it was uh, Chungsu who was responsible for her death. So freed from the basement, he emerges into the party carrying a knife. He stabs Ki and gives her a fatal wound before he grapples with uh, Chung Suk. And then, while this is happening, the son song collapses, you know, from seeing uh, Gunse. So the trauma it turns out he had been suffering was from seeing Gunse in the house and thinking that he was a ghost. Uh, Chung Suk manages to um, stab Gunse Se, and um, Ki Tech is, um, and so uh, Mr. Park is trying to hurry his son to the hospital and um, asks uh, Ki Tech to throw him the keys. Uh, he throws him the keys, but Kunze's body falls over the keys. And then when Mr. Park tries to lift up Kunze's body to get the keys, he shows this kind of look of revulsion, you know, that he smells Kunze's odor. And this triggers something in Kitek to stab Mr. Park himself. Right, And so the whole party is thrown into chaos Everyone flees. And then what, of course, is revealed later is that Kitek, who's not found, has uh, retreated into the basement room and has basically replaced Gunse in hiding in the basement of the park's house. Right? So even after the house is later then sold to a foreign family, uh, he still lives in the house in the basement, emerging every now and then to steal food. And the film ends with Kiwu then making a kind of resolution. Uh, his father's able to send out a, a message in Morse code indicating his presence in the basement. And so Kiwu then resolves at the end to rescue his father, right, to make enough money to buy the house so that he can reunite the surviving members of his family. And it ends with him back in the basement apartment that the family lived in at the beginning of the film. Now, the stabbing, of course, is sort of the most shocking incident in the film, and it is triggered uh, by Mr. Park and his wife talking about Kitek, uh, Mr. Kim. Now, Mr. Kim is at this point hiding underneath a coffee table, and Mr. Park says Mr. Kim has a kind of a smell that he smells that people on the subway also have. Mr. Park says that Mr. Kim is a good driver, but he also kind of pushes things to the point where he is almost annoying. Right, but he never crosses the line. And so it's the sense that he can be reduced to the kind of a foul odor that drives Kitek to kill his employer. That's uh, one uh, reading of the film. I mean, I think it's also clear that um, what, what also upsets Kitek is that in the chaos at the end, Mr. Park is uh, extremely concerned about getting his son, who has fainted, to the hospital, but doesn't really show any concern for but right, who's lying in their yard um, with a stab wound to the heart. So it's, in some sense, it's a combination of, of this feeling of being insulted and anger that um, this person could be uh, so concerned about his son and, and completely indifferent to his daughter that drives him to uh, stab uh, Mr. Park. But it's a film that has in many ways been read in, in, in kind of a, uh, I find to be a somewhat crude manner, as a film about class struggle and the loss of social mobility in South Korea. I'm not completely writing those um, interpretations off, but I think there's a lot more going on in the film that really complicate um, this kind of very easy view in which, you know, it's, the film is about what, systemic economic injustice or the confrontation between rich and poor. I mean, I think the Parks are rich, but rich in a particular sort of way. And also that the Kims are poor, but I would say they're not exactly working class.
0: Yes, I think you're right. The elitist desire to reduce to a class struggle based on economic inequality is at its heart a desire to ignore the fact that most of the movie is character studies. Each of the ten persons in three families gets some attention and they don't come out looking very well. The protagonists, the Kim family, Mother, father, child and daughter, which given South Korea's terrible demographics is an ideal. It's not true that most families even have two kids, but it's a kind of idealized version of a part of Korea. They're not good people. The desire to enjoy the violence in the movie while denying that character matters, although it's the character of the characters that leads them to do these things, is I think deeply disingenuous. It is not social class committing murders, and it is not simply an allegory for different social classes. It's very much a study of characters, of psychological types, and that makes it both more disturbing, since the poor are not heroes, but it also makes it very interesting because it suggests what Korea is like, what it's going through, and what might be required to get any change for the better. Yes. We should start, indeed, with examining this strange family, the Kims. As you say, they are not poor people, except right now. We are told that the father, Kim Kitek, had had jobs of various kinds. He's not just a good driver, but he tried to go into business for himself a couple of times it's just that it always went bad and led to debts and poverty and their present destitution. This seems to be what the problem in the family is, as well as the fact that they all have certain weaknesses, as you said, the son, the protagonist, Kim Ki-woo, he has all sorts of skills. He just never quite made it into university. And admittedly, there's a sense that maybe he doesn't have good opportunities otherwise, but he does get a great opportunity now. And for his part, he mostly acquits himself well. He doesn't cause trouble or seek revenge, he seems to have a certain capacity to be grateful for his opportunity or at least to do well his job without feeling personally humiliated by having to work as a tutor or anything like that. That part of the movie when he gets a job is a family celebration. Mm -hmm. And indeed, his father for once in his life shows good character and says that they should be grateful. Yes. That this is a good step for them and that in their gratitude, there lies the hope that better things are going to come ahead. They're going to come out of their temporary crisis. But it doesn't turn out that way. And part of that has to do with Kiwu's sense of shame. That seems to be his weakness. He is not sure, unlike his friend, that he could pull it off, that he could be a good tutor. And that shows lack of confidence in himself. But then he doesn't introduce his sister as his sister. He introduces her as a strange person with a similarly exalted pedigree in order to be a plausible art therapist. And that also is a sign of shame, strangely enough. Why didn't he introduce her as his sister, saying that, of course, they haven't seen each other much because she's been studying in America in this incredible university in Illinois and all that lying that's useful because the Parks are pretending to be snobs. They are not snobs, they're Philistines, but they are Philistines pretending to be snobs the mother of the Park family doesn't know the first thing about art therapy and has no interest in learning or about any of the other sophisticated things that they have to do because of their social class. She just kind of has to do it and so she pays for it. Yes. Kiwi is ashamed of admitting that she's his sister and that seems to be part of his problem he does have a certain class feeling that makes him loathe himself, that makes him insecure, lacking in confidence. And I believe that also explains the most shameful thing he does, which is to rifle through the diary of this teenaged girl who is falling in love with him, Park Dahye. And I believe the reason he does that is because he's uncertain of himself. Yes. He can't believe that this girl is really falling in love with him. hmm And that does show that there's a problem in the Kim family. The women are far manlier than the men are.
1: Ah, yes. All the
0: plans, all the decisions, all the, you know, doing even rough stuff is done by the women. And of course, symptomatically, the mother of the family, uh, Chung Sok, is actually the tough guy in the family down to threatening her husband with beating him up. She has athletic prizes and trophies from her youth and she constantly humiliates him and puts him down. Not that he has great character, but obviously this isn't helpful and it has helped the son be servile. As you observed, the way they get ahead in the beginning with the pizza job is that he, in a very slavish way, gets between his mother and the woman running the pizza company in order to appease everybody and arrive at a mutually acceptable negotiation. Mm -hmm. Is a young man in his 20s behaving in a slavish way between these other two women, both of whom are more resolute, more driven, stronger, more confident and ferocious even than he is. It's incredibly funny in its own way. There's absolutely no manliness in this man. So that would seem to be his problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting, like that scene where they surround the manager of the pizza delivery restaurant. You kind of wonder, like, what's actually going on, because it's the women who approach her in this very aggressive way. And so it doesn't sink in until maybe a couple of seconds later that it's actually they're the ones who have the potential to escalate the situation into violence, right? And that the son then has to go in and bring about some kind of peaceful resolution. Yeah, I mean, that is a very interesting aspect of the film. I mean, it also... You know, in our conversation earlier, you pointed out Kijong the daughter, I mean, she's the one who takes, in some sense, the first step towards hurting other people in order to improve the lot of her family. And she does that because of you know, the fact that she takes offense at the uh, chauffeur, you know, being interested in her romantically.
0: And what that chauffeur did was pretty close to gallantry. He offers, as he was instructed, to drop her off at her house. Now, of course, this turns out to be a source of shame for her because she couldn't let him know, she wouldn't trust him to know that she lives in the bad part of town. But, of course, the young man thinks I'll drop you off, which is doing a nice thing and completely within the rules here. And also, I'm offering to drop you off and that means maybe do you want to go out for a drink sometime? It's not deeply offensive, but she does have this private source of shame about where she lives and what she's pretending to be. And so all of a sudden she cannot tolerate the notion that this man acts as though she's in his league, as Americans say. It humiliates her that he might pretend to equality with her. And that partly is the shame of her poverty, which will disappear promptly since they're going to get rich. But partly, it's a kind of hatred that her plan to get up in the social class system has not made her immune to overtures by people who are nothing but limo drivers. Yes. It's remarkable how vain these people, who supposedly are poor and depressed, really and truly are. And so, on the spot, she decides to destroy his career by planting her underwear there. And that's, of course, also the first sign of the dangers associated with sexuality. That does show that she's stronger than her brother, but also way more wicked. Kiwu is not restrained out of nobility. He's just a coward. His friend, when he comes to give him the job and the noble task of watching over his protege so that she's not hit on by other guys and that she will be nice and pure and virginal for him to ask out later that friend also has a kind of spiritedness in him and so when he comes by to visit the family and make this symbolic gift of a scholar's stone his encouragement to his friend ki he kicks the ass of some drunkard who's constantly pissing in the alley there which of course is disgusting but it's also a problem for the Kims since their window opens right into the street right there but neither ki nor his father ever have the guts to do anything about it Mm -hmm. They're both weaklings. They're both cowards. It's the women who are violent and scheming. And maybe to an extent, they have to be tougher and behave in this ugly way because neither father nor son has any manliness in him.
1: And I think that perhaps this lack of manliness indicates that they are actually middle class. Right? They're not working class men. They're actually uh, members of the failed middle class. So their poverty is not because they belong to the working class, but because of the fact that their ventures did not work out. And so I think it does reveal it. Well, first of all, a couple of aspects of South Korean society. One is the high rate of failure of small business. I think it's one of the reasons why the middle class has become much reduced in South Korean society. I mean, it's becoming a much more economically polarized uh, economy. And also underemployment among young people. I mean, that's also a common problem, right? You have uh, many people who have lots of skills and abilities, but uh, are not able to find a, a way to make a, a decent living in the society. These two elements have combined to form the image of what has been called a hell Joseon. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but that sort of describes this dynamic in which um, South Korea, which had been so successful in the 80s and for much of the 90s, after the Asian financial crisis has become a very uh, economically polarized society, where one of the main problems is the lack of good jobs for young people. So there is, of course, this economic element in the story. But again, I mean, it's very, very complicated it does not work out in any kind of tidy manner in terms of, well, this is about oppression and this is about fighting the system or the injustice of the system. But as you said, I mean, these are also very striking characters who have, you know, very uh, unusual qualities as well as very strong ambitions. I mean, one thing that um, many of the commentaries on the film that I've read have not really gone into is the fact that if the family were only concerned about money, they would have probably quit while they were ahead. With the daughter finding work or the father right, becoming the driver, but the film tumbles over into catastrophe when they frame the longtime housekeeper and uh, force her out of her job. You know, so there's a hubris in the film that reviewers have missed in the Kim family. So it's not necessarily about money, but rather social status the Park family occupies in their minds. You know, during that uh, fateful party, when the storm is about to break, the mother Chung-suk says that, well, if I had money, I would be just as nice and sweet as Mrs. Park.
0: Yeah, and that's a pretty cheap excuse. She would obviously not be. As you noticed, Mrs. Park is a very soft woman and very weak. Yes. Whereas, although not entirely, I mean, she has certain good qualities. Whereas Chung-suk is a very willful woman, very manly, very spirited. There's no amount of money that could take that out of her or give her niceness. And you see there a certain kind of resentment that's only present really in the women. It's not just that Chung Sook says that you shouldn't believe that the rich are nice just because they really and truly are nice and you have the evidence because it's just the money softening things. It's also the daughter. Ki Jung also says, you know, don't give a damn about these people. Worry about us. Yes, And the difference would seem to be that even soft men like the father and son have a strange capacity to put themselves in the shoes of these other people, to be grateful for what they have received and to think that there's a kind of right in what is happening, that they are doing a work and they are getting paid for it and they just want to get on with this work as though their own lives weren't involved whereas the mother and the daughter think about their own personal situation, their own personal feelings and character, and this would seem to be why they are not satisfied with simply having jobs. Even after they have secured all these jobs, they are still incredibly resentful and have no capacity for gratitude, because now they would like to own the house. Yeah, They don't have this sense that Mr. Park, the father of the rich family, actually is a very successful entrepreneur in the new tech economy, You know, that's the future, it's some kind of good thing, it's prestigious, that's why he's rich, it's not like he has slaves or he's exploiting people, Mm. he's bringing the future. So they don't have a problem with being in a position of service, partly because of the competence, you're a driver, you're a teacher, and partly because they can identify in this abstract way with the tasks, roles, and with the achievements. They respect that man's achievement, and they respect the fact that he's nice to them. They don't simply assume that it's the money doing it or that there's no difference between people. They think, yeah, he has good character. They don't put themselves into the problem, they simply judge the man's actions. And Mr. Park behaves properly. Mm. So they're willing to draw boundaries between public and private. Mm. They're not going to go into the man's feelings or ask for the causes of his niceness or civility or generosity. They are satisfied with the fact that it is reliable has this character that's sort of public, of a job, contractual relationship. Mm-hmm. But obviously, this is not how the women think about it, who take it much more personally and who say, you know, it doesn't matter how they behave publicly. What matters is the cause of it, which is some kind of injustice. And so you see there two very different attitudes. And it's, it's perfectly compatible to have the attitude of the men of the family and be a citizen. But you couldn't be a citizen if you had the attitude of the women in the family because you would always be second guessing people's actions out of resentment or envy or jealousy or all sorts of private passions that force you to spy into other people's souls or into their motives and never be satisfied just with the actions. And so there's a connection between the wickedness and intrigue of the daughter and mother and the fact that this reveals private secrets. That this turns things that should be jobs into family and life problems and forces these two families into conflict the daughter does start something bad the moment she cheats and hurts this driver and ruins his job and his reputation just for the sake of salving her pride and getting her father a job through shameful, illegitimate, harmful means. She has no sense of justice. She has no sense of fairness. She has no sense of limits that shouldn't be trespassed. And that does set them on a course for tragedy because that young man did nothing bad or harmful or even shameful or improper. We are set on a course for tragedy by that unwillingness of the daughter to respect certain limits of propriety. I don't think that's an accident. What she's really good at is making fakes out of things and impersonating and fooling people. And that gives her a certain contempt for the people she can fool. Mm -hmm. She thinks she can take people to the cleaners. Her brother isn't like that, not just because he's a weakling, but because he has actually to teach English. Yes. He actually has to teach a test. There is objectivity and public-facing issue. And that also shows something problematic about the family as such. When the first two get jobs, that should be the end of the drama and it should go better from now on. This is all you can... Ask for sometimes in life yes mom and dad are going to have a hard time and it'll be a while before they get on their feet but their son and daughter have prestigious jobs that have a future ahead of them and money in the pocket right now so it's fine you're doing better you're going to achieve yes you might have to make some sacrifices but you see embodied in your children already success korea is still a success story the next generation better than this generation but that somehow is not enough daughter and mother they're incredibly envious resentful and there's nobody to stop them and this seems to say as you said that these are not working class people they don't have the habits the toughness they don't have the past they don't have the kind of re- combination of resignation and realism what they have is fantasies and vanity yes it's too easy for them to put themselves in the place of the parts in the sense of taking their things after the horrifying confrontation between the two poor families in the underground and the storm scene as the the father of the family, Kim Kitek, has this one terrible moment when he says to his son that his plan is to no longer make plans because plans never work. And if you stop making plans, you can't fail anymore. Yeah. He has abandoned being a father and he has abandoned being a man. Man is defined by purposive action. Mm -hmm. He can neither rule his wife or his family, nor even himself. He's that weak, and it does something really bad to him that only occurred to me when you mentioned that the other poor family that doesn't even have family names, the woman is just Moon Wang and her husband is Gunse, these people living this secret life in the underground, the wife feeds the husband like a baby, he's a lunatic. He, just like Mr. Kim, was betting on all sorts of jobs that landed him in debt, and that's why he's hiding... These men dreamed of being entrepreneurs, but in fact were reduced children. And to this kind of insanity of believing that life is a matter of chance, a cruel fate. You can't act to a purpose, achieve an honest success. Things can't work out for you. So it makes perfect sense that Mr. Kim would end up being trapped in that basement, at least for some years, just like Yunse had been before. Yes. He really has become that man because he has given up his dignity. He can't think of himself as a failure, and so he thinks himself as a prisoner of fate. Mm -hmm. He can't say, I tried something and I failed. He has to say, well, you know, there's no point in planning. There's no point in trying anyway. So also with the scene you mentioned, Mr. Kim murders Mr. Park. He begins to hate Mr. Park because Mr. Park says he stinks. This humiliates him because he doesn't feel he knows exactly what to do about it. This should be a simple issue of hygiene, but actually issues of hygiene do separate people in different nations or different classes or regions or in many ways. It's the fact that as Mr. Park astutely notices, he always gets right up to the line, but he never crosses it. He's friendly in his servile way, but also impudent. But he never presumes equality with his boss. And that seems to be the issue of stinking. His boss could never see himself as his equal, To his boss, the driver will always be one of the guys in the subway. Yes. And the fact that he can never get over that barrier shows that at some level he wants to identify with Mr. Park to be his equal. And the fact that he cannot do it humiliates him, which shows what's left of the ambition he must have had when he was trying his luck as an entrepreneur and failed. Mm -hmm. That's that failure all over again. And at the same time, it's his cowardice that gets to him. He threatens his wife a couple of times, but she just calls his bluff and it turns out that he's a weakling. He can never behave like a man. Mm -hmm. She will never let him and he will never dare to. And the only thing he can do as a man is to go insane and kill Mr. Park. And as you said, it's because Mr. Park is with the daughter of the Kim family, but it's also something else. It's the fact that Mr. Kim himself was too much of a coward to protect anybody when the violence started. He's too much of a coward to do anything. His wife is there screaming, help, do something. It's the wife that kills the madman.
1: Yeah.
0: She just runs him through with this barbecue skewer. (laughs) Wow. Even to the last, she's manlier than he is. And this humiliation is what he takes out on Mr. Park. Mm -hmm. And again, you see how much the behavior has to do with character, not simply with social class. There are other ways of dealing with these issues. Not everybody feels this way or ends up this way, of course. But the story seems to be built to show some of the good things, but also the very bad things that hide in characters that social class conceals. Yes. And in this case, you can see them revealed, and they are quite
1: startling. Mm-hmm. I guess I just wanted to go back a little bit to Kijong, the daughter. You know, she does have this arrogance and sense of resentment. You know, it's very deep. But she's also very good at what she does. And I think it is interesting how she is able to control the little boy. Uh, indicates perhaps in a, in a very strange way that she could be a creature of that world, right? That she could very much naturally fit into that world and perhaps do a better job of raising a small rich boy than the rich boy's rich mother. <laughs> right? that there's something about her, you know, she's an unpleasant and acidic side to her. But I think there's this also a certain element of realism, right, that she's able to see people you know, kind of clearly, right? even if she doesn't necessarily act from good or kind motives. This is what enables her to see through the boy's act. And it's interesting that also that Dahed, the older sister, sees that the boy acts in a certain way to manipulate his mother. And so there's this very interesting sort of element of you know manipulation that takes place in the film, where you know Mrs. Park obviously is very much a kind of a harried you know, housewife and mother, But at the same time, she makes a huge fuss over things that are really quite minor. And if she were to relax somewhat, like she would actually probably do a better job of raising her children. There's something about her that creates drama and tension out of her very concern for her family. And then it's interesting also that um, when she is making love to her husband, uh, she asks for drugs wealth in south korea it seems creates tremendous amounts of anxiety and so the wealthy do not see you know danger in the form of the poor or the thwarted middle class or the working class coming after them what their money does it seems is to create a kind of a bubble a world that they inhabit you know where they can completely focus on somewhat trivial concerns which nevertheless serve as a considerable uh, source of stress and anxiety. And I think Mr. Park, the successful entrepreneur, unfortunately the film doesn't really go into what it is that makes him successful, but also he seems to also orient his life around feeling comfortable. I mean, he's not Tom Buchanan, right, Um, in the sense of feeling some kind of threat and of needing to respond in a brutal and manly way to danger. But he is someone who also, in some sense, doesn't want to... Like for him, conflict itself is wrong. For him, it's a sign that something in his world is out of whack. And so that's why, you know, his fixation that the driver never crossed this sort of invisible line that he's drawn in his head. So they're not exactly, you know, aristocrats. Money makes them comfortable and anxious, but doesn't really give them access to any kind of world that is in some sense different or higher than this world of material success.
0: I think that's entirely right, and I think that that does show that on the one hand, the poor Kim family is right to identify in a certain sense with the Rich Park family, they really are the same kinds of people, they have the same neuroses and psychodramas, and they are not really separated by class. It's a delusion of liberal elites because the reality is, as you say, that if you look at these rich people, they're not bad. None of them are wicked and they don't do wicked things like the poor people do. But on the other hand, there's very little to admire about them. They lack character. They lack strength and confidence. That is to say exactly the things that the poor desperately hope that they themselves would acquire if they acquired money. Yes. The movie reveals that if you do end up that rich, you just have psychodramas. You will not have that confidence because it's a problem of character, it's not a problem of money. And that would seem to be the problem with South Korea. It creates elites who are morally crippled, not in the sense that they become wicked. They don't, you know, torture and kill the poor or hunt them for sport or whatever. What they do instead is try to isolate themselves. And the movie shows a couple of things about what's wrong with this family that hinge in an Euripidean manner, as you suggested, on the women. The women are immoral but it makes them witty they notice things their malice is intelligent discerning and quite sharp Mm -hmm. and indeed the daughters in both families are the ones that notice that the young dasong the troubled son of the park family is putting on an act he's bullying his mother because he thinks it's fun he gets all this attention and it's a game to him he doesn't realize that his mother is a weakling that she's not playing along with his game that she really is this soft, uncertain, desperate for approval, desperate for standards that come from America or science or rich consumer goods, but never from themselves. That bubble, we see the party of the rich people where the murders start happening. And these are just people pretending to be American liberals or European liberals. They have no capacity to be Korean and they're running away from the city they are in the midst of. This part is happening on the morning after this terrible storm that flooded all the poor people in Seoul and put them through misery. These cretinous rich people do not have the dignity or the knowledge to think that this would be a great moment to go help out. Yeah. To step on their pride a little and show up and be helpful. The reason the rich are confident is that they know that the poor envy them and rely on them. Whereas in this case, the poor may envy the rich but cannot rely on them. Yes. And that is a great problem. And of course, it is the suicide ticket for any degenerate aristocracy or meritocracy or oligarchy. They are not strong enough either to help or to scare the poor into going on with life in a legal, non-revolutionary way. And so, indeed, the husband of the family is in tech the hope there of course is especially acute in korea which wouldn't exist without technology but it's more generally a problem for liberalism the hope that technology can create a better future and better people along with it Mm -hmm. but technology has created all this uh, prosperity in korea it's just that as you say it's wiping out the middle class and of course wiping out the future because there are no more children yes This new safety and is mechanical, robotic, robot, technological based. And it seems to be inhuman and exacting a price that the society just has no idea how to deal with. And so this man is not a good family man. He doesn't really love his wife because he kind of despises her stupidity. And you can see the main reason this woman is so anxious and desperate for the approval of her children, her household manager or whoever, strangers she just has met but have credentials, is because her husband does not support her. This is not the kind of man who encourages her and shows pride in her. And for that reason, she feels that nothing is ever good enough. It's not that she's that bad and we do know that she has a certain capacity that is primal, that is the same in a human and an animal. One day her son Dasong in the middle of the night collapsed into something that might have killed him, some kind of epileptic shock, and she just rushed him to the hospital immediately alone. She is not a coward, she is not stupid, she doesn't hesitate, whatever things may be said against women's weakness, they are not true of any of the women in this movie. Yes. All of them are damn near heroic, and therefore also quite potentially villainous, of course. Yeah. Bong insists on this stuff, just like we will see later with the daughter of the Park yeah. family, but with the adults you begin to see that somehow the rich have become alienated from the body. The disgust with smell is part of that, which returns as kink. In order to have sex, they're thinking not just of drugs, but of that pair of panties Mm -hmm. that they found in the limousine. A rich life is robotic, synthetic, lived in this incredibly modernistic villa that is fit only for machines. It looks like a factory plant. It's not fit for human beings. And their lives are too synthetic. They are too antiseptic. They are too obsessed with health. They fired their housekeeper because they think she might be diseased. This is how the rich do indeed sometimes react to the poor. They take cleanliness to acquire this strange moral status, which in this case seems to be fear of ill health, fear of the body. And it's not just the smell and the sexual kink, you also notice that it's only the boy in the family, Da Song, who has identified the kins as a family because he's a child who doesn't know how to shut up and says they all smell the same. Mm -hmm. His parents are ashamed at that moment because they think you don't tell poor people that you're disgusted with them. You can't say that to their faces, it's impolite. But what the son is saying is they smell the same because they're together, they're a family. Because of this despising attitude that the rich conceal behind their politeness, they can't make the inference. Mm -hmm. The poor family immediately understands and they conceal it and they think, what are we going to have to do? Use different detergents from now on to have different smells? They realize it's not necessarily dirt. Cleanliness also smells the same if you're all using the same detergent, right? Wash your clothes together. But the rich people cannot afford to see that just like the mother of the family or the father can't see that their teenage daughter is falling in love with every tutor. yeah. And that's, again, the body speaking up. Mm-hmm. But the rich cannot afford to notice it, and that seems to be their great weakness here.
1: Yeah, and Mr. Park certainly cannot read the face of Mr. Kim on the day of the party. I mean, it's very clear to the audience that Mr. Kim is in a state of considerable distress his face is very red. He looks like he's suffering some kind of um, physical pain. And yet, Mr. Park insists that he goes through this you know, kind of degrading masquerade of dressing up as an American Indian, you know, for this kind of uh, little play that they want to stage for the sun. But as someone who, you know, who relies on money and who, for whom money has made his good life possible, right, he can't imagine that this life can actually be threatened by somebody. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that is a very good point. He is an incredibly unobserving person. There is nothing in his house that he understands or even notices. As you said, he's so addicted to comfort that if he notices something is weird, he just wants the weird to go away. His removal from life is quite shocking, but in a way incredibly plausible because he owes his success to artificiality. Yes. And of course, I mean, since it's a techie thing, it shouldn't be so surprising that a poet like Bong would write a story where nature takes its revenge on science. In the case of the Park family, you see failure upon failure upon failure to work as a family. That part is softened by money. They think that you can transform family into a series of tasks that you pay for to be performed by others. Mm -hmm. That is to say, father and fathering are not connected mother and mothering are not connected Mm -hmm. it's more of a legal status than it is a series of activities which is a hilarious idea but it is of course not necessarily unknown especially to elites who want to offload their kids or worries over their kids to somebody else and that does seem to be a weakness in korean society's imitation of western liberalism That is to say, this insistence that higher education and American higher education with American credentials, with American ideas, that's going to be the success story. But it leads them to neglect what is in front of their eyes, their son and their daughter, and of course, even each other. That's an incredible weakness to see. And as I said, despite what liberals might want to see, the rich people in this movie are not bad. They never do anything bad, and they sometimes do good things. But they're mindless which, at least from a political point of view, is way more dangerous and way more irresponsible. They are really and truly isolated from Korean society, and they seem to live with luxury because they hope it will take away the bad thoughts. It's a respite from worry about whether you have paid for enough tutoring and enough therapy and enough all this stuff for your kids. Existential anxiety becomes this sort of worrying over your kids and you hope to arrange that through these silly institutional solutions of tutoring and therapy. And so there's a hope that maybe you can offload these things on the public. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to deal with my son, can't the university deal with him for me? Mm -hmm. The poor look to universities for opportunities economically and socially, but the rich are looking for spiritual and psychological deliverance from the same institutions. And that makes you wonder. Who is propping up the institutions if all these cretins in their various ways are trying to exploit them? It's not entirely a bad thing. Of course, education should help upward mobility and the selection of a competent elite. Of course, elites should get a certain sense of comfort psychologically from being in institutions of prestige. But you're not supposed to rely on them. They're supposed to rely on you. Institutions do not have an existence apart from the people in them and especially those running them, of course. (laughs) And so you end up with this strange portrait, which of course is very partial, as you put it. We don't really know what Mr. Park is doing or why it matters. His mind is abstracted from in the story and the abstraction seems to be required to reveal this weakness of the elites, but it ends up giving you a very partial portrait of society. You could understand the weaknesses of Korea on the basis of Bong's movie as we have tried to show, but you could not understand why it even works or ever became rich in the first place. There is an abstraction from that mind, from that kind of industry or thinking or economy. And I think it is at least partly justified, because what Bung seems to be trying to say is there are certain weaknesses in this society, in this institutional setup. Whatever virtues people had before to bring this new prosperity and democracy into existence has disappeared.
1: Yeah, but I think what is interesting about the film, though, is that it seems to go against that reading a little bit with the daughter of the Park family, Dahem. Because in some way she seems to be not her parents' child. Right? She's enterprising, she notices things, she has a kind of a secret life on the side. and also she seems not to notice the kind of social distinctions that make Kiwu and his family very nervous or anxious. right She accepts him straightforwardly, right? I mean, it could be, of course a factor of her age, you know that she's very young and hasn't had these distinctions. But I think there seems to be something almost, um, I don't know, like there's a very interesting way in which when I, I was very surprised at the end when, after Kiwu has been beaten nearly to death by Kunse, when the chaos overtakes the party, we see Dahe carrying Kiwu on her back, right? You know, the film implies that that's how he was able to survive, that's how he got to the hospital, right? The film establishes that she is not squeamish. Right, That she's able to keep a cool head in, in an emergency situation. So that seemed to be a very surprising note of hope in the film.
0: I think you're right that in the daughter we see what we only hear in the mother. This moment of heroism where you see life threatened and you bend every effort, stretch every sinew to save a life in this desperate way. The 16-year-old girl is carrying a boy in his mid-20s, running out of a house. Indeed, like her mother, you see that she actually has all sorts of strength in her, which might lead to a better thing. Who knows? Obviously, things didn't work for her mother. Somehow, her social class took out of her her strengths, Mm -hmm. exhausted her, not by straining her, exhausted her by giving her nothing to do. She's dying of stress, not of hardship whereas the daughter isn't there yet and indeed in her vanity and in her jealousy and in her falling in love and in her dear diary and in her exasperation at her brother she's very natural and you know not without a certain astuteness and with a certain daring too it's not just that she falls in love with her tutor but she seduces him because he's a bit of a weakling yeah He's not even sure whether he loves her or whether they should be doing this. And it's not just that she's always texting him because girls are that way and guys aren't. It's because she's stronger than he is and more decisive. Mm. And this seems also to change Q to some extent. Yes. It's not just the horror. Q is liberated by horror. When once the murders start happening, well, he's not there because he's already been almost killed and he's on his way to the hospital, but that horror where his sister dies, loses his father, Mr. Park is murdered, and then both him and the young boy Dasong are almost dead but saved by the hospital, that liberates him. Q is not a coward anymore, he is not a weakling, he is not without ambition, he is not without confidence, and seems to have also this other requirement, not just the negative requirement of horror, which is in itself a kind of pleasure. You know, you don't have to be afraid of anything anymore, and you get the pleasure of having survived it. (laughs) Whatever people say about trauma is, you know, at least to some extent true, but it's woefully misguided. Horror has many advantages. But there's a positive thing to the story, which seems to be indeed Dahe that she's as powerful as her mother once was and saves his life, and this seems to somehow transmit onto Kyu. Yes. He's not bitter or angry or, you know, has survivor's guilt or whatever. There's something somehow approaching serenity in his new confidence, as though somehow the fact that this girl saved his life makes him one of the elect, as it were, that has proven that he's actually worth something. Yeah. <laughs> it's it is very strange, but indeed, it's incredibly hopeful. You wouldn't expect that. And indeed, I mean, if you were to think about this as oppressed and oppressors, it wouldn't really make any sense. That this poor little rich girl is the one who actually saves this protagonist, but it's too baffling and then it has this strange suggestion about it that some part of this thing you're not going to be able to understand in class terms. You just have to think about what kind of person this is. Tahi has this strange strength that she's the only person who's not particularly worried or uh, hating herself or turning against herself. Really, She doesn't have dark passions. She doesn't have this temptation to blame herself or hurt herself. It's quite bracing to watch.
1: Yeah. Well, I think for many older Korean viewers, these elusive demonstrations of strength in the film kind of harken back to the memories of the Korean War and what people had to do to survive the grinding poverty that followed the war. And so I think that's why, like in Bong's film, we're able to feel strangely hopeful by the end of the film. You know, the reviewers will express the belief that Ki-woo is not going to succeed in buying the house, that there will never be a family reunion. But for some reason, like in my uh, experience of the film, I found the film incredibly hopeful. In some sense, I I left feeling that uh, Ki-woo was actually going to achieve the goal of making money to buy the house. I mean, I think Bong himself called the final shot a kind of a kill shot. You know, where the camera sort of, um, it's a kind of a dolly shot, you know, that descends on Kiwu sitting against the wall of the half basement apartment. But I have trouble really thinking that that's, you know, the actual meaning of the film. Because as you said, it's the experience of horror that gives Kiwu a why to his life. He finally has something that he didn't have and that very few people have in an affluent society, and that is a purpose, right? And that seems to be a greater achievement than any amount of money that he could make.
0: Yeah, and it seems like his father too, you know, he commits this murder, he kills Mr. Park and he has to suffer in this basement, risking starvation, living alone, he's effectively going to jail. Mm -hmm. But it is a self-imposed jail, which may be even worse as punishment in a way. But it also gives him this new strength of purpose, despairingly, he communicates by communicating Morse code through light systems that he doesn't know anybody's watching. just has to believe somebody in his family gives a damn and realizes that they might be able to hear from him he's never seemed so confident active resolute before yeah and his son also they seem to have a connection now as father and son in a way they could not have had before Mm -hmm. and it does seem that a lot of suffering is required to that both to know first of all that you're strong enough to survive and also to cure them of this delusion that you can lift things up to chance or fate Mm -hmm. This is not how Dahe saves Kiwu, she acts resolutely, unhesitatingly. But of course this is also actually true of Chang Suk, the mother of the Kim family, who fights ferociously to avenge her daughter and maybe save what's left of her life, although she's dying on bleeding, and kills that madman. You need to have that resolution. Yes. And that's the only show you see of people willing to fight for their own. It's in a way grotesque, but in another sense it's natural. Mm-hmm. It's no longer a class issue. Yeah. It's not about being rich or poor. It's about whether you believe it's worth being alive, whether you think being human is good in this basic sense. That does seem to be the thing that is achieved through the movie.
1: Yes, and it's a kind of a distillation of historical experience. I mean, the kind of mayhem, right, um, brings back the memory of war and carnage and suffering. And I think for Bong, you know, he recognizes the great value that suffering has in bringing people to their senses. It may not be necessarily through money that Kibu might rescue his father. I mean, if there is some other sort of catastrophe, one that, you know, um, affects the rich, that is big enough to affect the rich, um, that might also be the door to another kind of freedom.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. It's not clear what the sequel will be. You just know that now father and son finally are close. Both of them are decided and they have a confidence that they lacked before they will no longer be crippled by uncertainty which seems to be the thing that keeps the kings in their way they think that the rich get to objectify their will with money you can buy the things you want or the people and services you want and so you know who you are, how do you know who you are? you are the person who buys, consumes these things, hires these people looks in this way to others but if you're poor, you can't objectify your will through money so what are you gonna do? they're not quite confident they can objectify your will through work that competence at work is enough to show that you're doing a good thing for other good human beings who owe you respect but at the end you get a more serious definition of what it means to be human it's primarily to believe and to act as though you believe that being human is good at first you see this more in the women than in the men but at the end it's the father and son who are that way that shows that there is a path forward and it might not depend primarily on money. It depends on a different attitude to the problem of uncertainty, which plagues liberal democracies in our times. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't know quite what's going to happen, you don't know what choices to make. But if you don't know what choices to make, you're choosing something, you don't really know who you are, and you don't really deserve good things. You can't succeed if you're not doing stuff. If you keep changing what you're doing because you can't believe in yourself and in what you're doing for long enough for it to come to fruition, or you give up in the face of adversity, then you are a prisoner of chance. Then you are fated and a, a kind of a joke. And so it would seem that the problem of the movie is not to cure the class divide, but to cure the problem of self-loathing through uncertainty. Indeed, even the mother of the Park family and her boy, they survive. You know, only the father of the Park family dies, and only the daughter of the Kim family. Those things don't seem to be entirely accidental. Certainly everything that comes bad in the Kim family is because of the daughter. And perhaps that is also true in a strange way of the Park family and the father of the family who, in his most despicable moment, talks down his wife to the driver. Mm. He can't even say that he loves her. Yeah. She isn't just in her silly way trying to raise the kids, but saved the boy's life once. There's certainly more character than the father ever shows. And the daughter is like her, like the mother, oh, not yes. the father. So it's in the women that you see strength of character and this love of life. You do see also a distillation of virtues and an insistence that maybe character for Koreans doesn't just mean depending on money, technology, education, and social status. It might be something else that's more about life and death, facing yourself in a natural way, without the artifice or the convention. It makes a lot of sense why this would be a very popular movie, after people see all the shame as it were of Korea today, it doesn't end in tragedy. Mm -hmm. And of course, movies by prestigious directors that are horrifying are not rare in Korea. They have established a national brand, actually, in cinema. Mm -hmm. But this is not one of those things. I found that surprising, but very bracing.
1: Yeah. It's also sort of interesting that in Pong's um, films as well, there's a kind of a very comical emphasis on the body. And this can even come across in very uncomfortable ways, especially when, at the end, Kiwu gives a voiceover when he talks about how his brain injury caused him to break out in laughter. I mean, so he's laughing, right? And when he, when he visits the mausoleum where his sister's uh, ashes are being held... Right, that he he just simply laughs through this kind of aftermath. But there's something about these involuntary you know gestures that I think for Pong as a director, he, he's someone who's very much on the side of life, of vitality. Right, and there's something about these like a physiological reactions, whether smells. In the host, there's a very interesting line. The elderly father who works along with his adult son says that he can tell what kind of day his son is having by the smell of his farts. <laughs> You know, that the, the body has a kind of unruliness, right, um, that not only communicates strength, but also change. There's this sort of indication that, you know, that our expectations are always going to be defied in one way or another. I think it also emphasizes how life somehow goes on, right? The fact that our bodily functions are beyond our control indicates in the sovereignty of life itself.
0: Yeah, that's right. Life is not simply political, but also it's not simply moral in the sense of it's up to your choice. Your body doesn't stop breathing. And it's somehow, as I said, the first thing that I noticed is how the rich are alienated from the body. They can perceive it as disgusting or kinky or something to be ignored or to be therapeutically dealt with. But then there is indeed this other side where you see the unambiguous love of life that is the body. Now that you mention it, I think that, yeah, it it makes a lot of sense that the problem is the artificial and that people live themselves up to chance if artificiality doesn't work for them. But they should trust instead in this other side that is natural, the goodness of life. Yes. But apparently to get to it, to trust in it, it has to be tested in some way. And there's something to be said for surviving bad things, to knowing that you're not as weak or vulnerable or doomed as you might have feared there's a strength to life that you maybe didn't credit. Yeah. These people are forced into doing daring things without having wanted or chosen it. Mm-hmm. It seems like if you're not going to do it willingly, you'll be forced into it.
1: Yeah. It was also interesting how in the father's voiceover, he talks about how he buried Munguang in the yard the house itself becomes, you know, haunted and the fact that all these terrible things happen in the house, of course there are no ghosts per se, but people forced to become ghosts, right? Which I think is another way of saying that people are forced to take on some kind of historical meaning that they could never choose. So economic failure has become a kind of engine for the continuation of history. The fact that people are forced to live underground, you know, cut off from the light, and that the housekeeper would be buried in the yard of the house. This is, you could say, you know, perhaps a kind of an emblem of the nation itself. I mean, to put it somewhat schematically, yeah. that the house you know, has everything that is, you know, modern about contemporary South Korea. But it also holds all the sort of casualties, right? All the, all the kind of suffering, the shock and the surprises that have accompanied the emergence of this society, uh, which um, now has such an uncertain future ahead of it. That's
0: a very good point, right? At the end, the house is rented by a German family, the father, Mr. Kim, says they're kind of okay because it turns out that their food isn't that bad, yeah. is what you hear stereotypically about yeah. Germans. can learn to accept these people, but they have no idea what the reality is, it's between the father who buried the old housekeeper and his son who knows that he is there. This is a Korean problem, it doesn't concern these foreigners, but indeed now it means something, that the father had to deal with that corpse and do the holy thing, bury the woman. (laughs) That's the least that piety demands, that's what you do for people when they die. There's some kind of continuity that we have together because of suffering and dealing with the finality of death, and therefore our desire to continue in some way. Mr. Kim has no hope in the world now, he has to believe in this future, but also indeed as you said to lay the past to rest, and therefore accept his own guilt. And that does indeed show that maybe Korea needs more of the past than it realizes. The dream that Korea liberalizes prosperity, elites, technology, we're going to put an end to human suffering, is obviously deluded. But is there any livable alternative? And this seems to be at least working towards that possibility that past and present and future could accept what is good in being human, but also accept mortality and guilt and suffering. These things are tied together. Yes. And it seems an experience of loss is necessary simply to try to achieve, simply to try to live on and to make something of yourself, as you say. This is what drives young Q. In the beginning, you think that he's so much worse off than his friend. His friend is manlier, he's a successful student, and he's getting to study abroad in the paradise, the elites of Korea and many other places so deeply admire, But... By the end of it, there is something strangely admirable about Q because he has survived horror and it hasn't broken him. He's much stronger as a character than he was before. Of course it's inappropriate to laugh like a crazy person, but Brino, you know, of course he's laughing he survived. He went through hell and lived. Of course he's laughing. <laughs> So it makes perfect sense. There's no survivor's guilt or, you know, psychodrama anymore in him. So yeah. you know, this is incredibly encouraging, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's also interesting that he feels that he's paid the debt so that he doesn't feel survivor's guilt. Right. That in the unfolding of events, even in the intention that he had to kill Gunse to actually do what his father you know, refuses to do or does not want to think about. He has gone through a kind of passage where he is in some sense able to come away from it with determination right rather than with regret you know or self-recrimination, which maybe reflects the fact that South Korea is in an earlier stage of liberalism, right the fact that people can go through terrible experiences and be strengthened by them, right? and that it would be natural to to be expected to be strengthened by them.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. There's no guilt here both the father and the son become so strong because both of them feel that they are paying for their crimes. Mm-hmm. Q almost was murdered for his attempt to murder. That's it for that. That's justice. Yeah. And his father is literally stuck in jail with nothing but hope in the future for his son. That is punitive justice. So even that, I mean, punishment, not just suffering, but punishment in this sense, that's justice of justice seems to be a tonic. Mm. I have heard of this. One day I met some guys who got out of jail and were talking about it as people who realized that they both did time. In America, this is, you know, it's like being part of a conspiracy. They were exchanging stories and what have you. And one of them worked his way in five minutes flat to expressing a very traditional theory of restorative justice. Prison made a good man of him, beat the stupid out of him and the irresponsibility and the weakness and taught him to be a good man. It's it's amazing because it's so rare, but this is what you hear here as well. He doesn't walk away from this story with this sort of liberalism we have today, which means blame the institutions, blame the society, blame maybe oppression or racism or whatever, has absolutely no resentment. I think that's why I found it so bracing. You're right how important it is to feel restored through punishment. That you have indeed made amends. You have atoned. You're not getting away with murder. You're not somehow profiting from injustice. And then I guess that is required. I mean, if Q is to have a future, he it has to be his. He can't profit from injustice. That would always be on him in some way. And indeed, he doesn't owe somebody something.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess that is what's so liberating.
1: I mean, the problem, I think, of the sort of um, neoliberal capitalist economy is that, of course, generally people take it for granted that money is sort of the ultimate and, and the highest goal. But what I really quite like about Parasite is that it shows that the only answer to this is to play a, an even higher stakes game. Right? There are games that are much higher stakes than accumulating money. Like mean, Rescuing your father is a very high stakes game the thing it's like if you play a high stakes game you will achieve all these other goals which you maybe assumed would be out of your reach you know beforehand
0: yeah that is a very good point that maybe money chasing is too unreliable at least for most people some people might have a talent for it and the peculiar love of it since if you make money you love the thing you make which is going to be money but maybe otherwise it's just supposed to be part of getting something else it's not a shocking idea, it's just that somehow this is no longer part of political and ethical teaching.
1: Yeah, well, there's an interesting line from Machiavelli where he says that you have to shoot, aim higher than your goal if you want to achieve it.
0: Yeah, exactly, right? You have to aim above because you have to factor in the distance. If you're going to get to your goal, you have to consider how hard it really is and match your ambition to that difficulty. And yeah, I mean, uh, Q starts and ends, as you said, in the same rotten little household in this half-basement. He's not miserable about it at the end. He's no longer a laughable creature. There's nothing contemptible about him now. Yeah. So, indeed, it does seem that a lot of this change has to do with whether you're sure that you're better than money. Especially the women of the house who complain that if they had money, then they would be good people, are forced by their envy and resentment to desire money to hope that they can be justified by it. But obviously, Kiu is no longer in that sort of situation.
1: Yeah, and I think it's very key that the family left the window open right? That's how the water got into the house. So in other words, I mean, they wouldn't have suffered the flooding if they had remembered to close the window, right? So if they hadn't had the party when the storm broke out, which of course is always a sign of divine wrath, right? If, if they had remembered, to, if one of them at least had remembered just to go back home, well, that apartment would not have been flooded. So I think it's owning up to that responsibility, right? That it was their envy that led them to disaster.
0: Yeah, and you can think about the psychology involved there too, I think you're right that the plot points out that bad things, tragedy only happens when they are not only parting, but instead of enjoying, there's something grim, resentful, ugly in them. They can't, drinking and eating and then relaxing and having all this freedom, why does it bring up all this ugliness inside? You know, maybe that discipline of having to work for somebody was good for them. It made them less resentful. But you're right. This also is a responsibility that's punished indeed in this sort of cosmic way. You know, you're not going to be in control of nature. At least that, you know, you don't know when bad things will happen. (laughs) There, the fact that they rush into the apartment, risking drowning. This is where Q saves the gift from his friend, the Scholar Stone, kind of sign of his devotion. And there you see that, you know, they're not that soft they don't hesitate to do this, there they is their life, they go in there, they do this stuff, even though this disgusting toilet overflowing, the apartment is almost filled with water, and there's the fear of death by electricity, yeah. and yet, they're not cowards in that moment. Yeah. Now, of course, it's terrible to have that flooding in your apartment, but, you know, didn't Americans, during various hurricanes, it just happened in Texas, in uh, Houston a couple of years ago, come together? Doesn't it remind people that they have to unhesitatingly, as skillfully and fiercely as possible, hold on to life and do saving things? It's indeed another sign that personal action and personal responsibility is the only thing that you can really count on, but also that it has a remarkable power. There's so much the matter simply with psychology, but that you can't therapeutically solve the problems of your soul. It's actions and how you treat and are treated by other people that make the difference. As I said in the beginning, every character in this movie gets attention. Scenes, dialogue, actions that reveal choices, and all sorts of strange psychological matters that you have to pay attention to. But it's not just the character study, it's how they are affected, how they treat each other, and this sense that you're not stuck in your head, soliloquizing. It's how you live with other people. What Q says at the end about himself and you are allowed for once into his perspective. What future he's hoping to achieve, you see visualized his dream. He's earned that actually, yeah. it's not merely a fantasy anymore. Well, Peter, I think we have come to the conclusion of our conversation. This is our first Bong conversation. We should find some others of his movies and talk more about him. It's possible that we are right about this. And it's an insight, of course, I owe you that there is a remarkable interest in older virtues from Korea's history in the possibility that suffering is good, that it's redemptive and restorative, it'll make you stronger and better. Perhaps this is also there in others of his movies and we'll be able to see something of what keeps him going as a director or what it is that he has to say to audiences.
1: Yes, I'd be very glad to. I mean, he's made a a very diverse range of films and he's had some very remarkable achievements, I think, showing both the hopeful as well as the darker sides of, of South Korean society.
0: That's right. So then we'll have to choose one of them. Perhaps the host, or which was so successful, or perhaps Memories of Murder, which was, I guess, his first prestigious notice, his debut. And then we'll do this again sometime soon. Okay. Yes, I look forward to it as as always, Titus. Thanks a lot for joining me. Until next time, all the best. Okay. Thanks. Take care.